0: In our last unit, we looked at the historiography of the French Revolution and we concentrated on two main currents of scholarship. The social uh, interpretation, the classic interpretation uh, of the French Revolution on the one hand, which reigned from, say, the middle of the 19th century uh, uh, until. Until, really, until the Cold War, uh, which saw the rise of what's known as revisionism, that is historians who revised the classic, uh, interpretation. Uh, and, you know, as I say, that, that current kind of scholarship emerged in the context of the Cold War, um, you know, especially in the 1950s. And the social his, uh, interpretation, uh, as you recall, insisted with Karl Marx that all history is the history of class struggle. Right. It was a view that pit that pits an entrenched feudal aristocracy against a rising commercial bourgeoisie. And it, it argued uh, or central to you know, its view of revolution was that powerful entrenched interests had to be overthrown. right The crown and the aristocracy uh, were, were deeply entrenched, these historians argued and They had to be overthrown by a coalition of peasants, workers, and urban bourgeois. Now, the revisionists stressed the political and ideological nature of the revolution uh, as opposed to social conflict. Uh, And the the first thing they did was to question Marxist categories. So they asked just how bourgeois the bourgeoisie of 1789 was. Right. They pointed out they were not factory owners. They were not nascent capitalists. Right. Most of the leaders of the third estate in 1789 were lawyers or doctors or petty government uh, officials. Right. There were very few bankers or um, uh, you know, people involved in overseas commerce. I mean, a handful, but really only a few. The second thing that the revisionists did was that they insisted on the role of chance, of intrigue, of negotiation, ultimately of short run change at the, uh, in, instead of long run, long run structural changes. You'll recall from Taylor's essay uh, that, that he presented us with the French Revolution as a political revolution with social consequences rather than a social revolution, with political consequences. And so for Taylor, political negotiation and debate over the royal finances created a framework within which social conflict could take place. In Taylor's view and that of other revisionists, the power and the legitimacy of the French monarchy collapsed when the king went broke in August of 1788, before the revolution as we think of it really began. All right. So you know, let me slow down and ask, well, when does revolution begin? Uh, and think about where does revolution take place? Does the revolution really take place in Versailles, the, the King's Palace and the site of the meeting of the Estates General, but in the debates of the deputies? In, in Paris, you know, where the you know, assembly is going to move, again, with the debates of the, the deputies of the National Assembly or maybe in the working class streets of the Manetres and the Saint-Culottes, or, or perhaps it takes place in the French countryside. Uh, George Lefebvre told us it took place in, you know, in all of these uh, lo- locations that they interacted with one another, came together in perhaps surprising ways. Uh, which raises the question, what created a revolutionary dynamic? Uh, what makes this the French Revolution? Or, or when did a run-of-the-mill political crisis turn into this incredibly powerful, biggest of modern revolutions? Okay, so this week we begin the narrative. And as we do, I wanna call uh, attention to major turning points. as reform reform turns into revolution. At each step, what options are open? Who wields power? Where does leverage come from? In particular, I want you to pay attention to the emergence of a revolutionary dynamic, to think about the conditions that allow events to take on a momentum of their own. contemporaries experienced this as a kind of avalanche or a boulder rolling downhill that picked up steam and was ultimately unstoppable, right? How does that happen? Okay, to to begin, I would like to take you back a few years into the early 1770s in 1771, when uh, Louis XV's minister, uh, in particular, his minister of justice, uh, Charles Maupu. Um, you know, instigated a series of far-reaching reforms uh, of the judicial system. In particular, what he was trying to do was to rein in the thirteen sovereign law courts. Right, the the aristocratic parlement. Uh, Louis XV Fifteenth had simply had enough. Right, the incessant back and forth between the aristocratic parliaments and the crown had gone on for too long. Mopu thought. Uh, and Louis XV supported him. And so what the two of them tried to do was to fully subordinate the, the law courts to the crown, right? Louis XV wanted to claim back the power that his grandfather Louis XIV had had um, before he died. Uh, and, and most you know, historians think that these Mopu reforms which centralized the, the law courts under the crown would have worked if the crown had simply held firm uh, and uh, simply you know, stood firm, as I say, in the face of resistance. But what ultimately happened was that Louis XV, he died of smallpox before this change could really be a uh, Fully enacted, and when Louis XVI came to the throne in the mid 1770s, right, Mopu was pushed out in 1774, and just a couple of years later, Louis XVI comes to power, uh, and you know he was eager, like all kings, eager to be loved. Uh, he did not want to begin his reign uh, with an open war with the aristocratic law courts, and so Louis 16th backed down. But when he did so. Right. This, this, well, I mean, it's not age old, but this 70 year old sort of pattern of back and forth between the aristocracy and the crown, it continued and it spun out of control. Okay, so I want to take you. Briefly through two of the you know, critical last finance ministers of the old regime who had slightly different approaches for how to manage the, the fiscal crisis. That is, the, the king's finances were in a terrible state. The, the French monarchy was in debt from the time Louis XV came to, to power. Those debts have only grown, in particular because of the Seven Years' War in the middle of the 1700s uh you know against in, in particular Great Britain uh you know adds tremendously to the royal debt and then the American Revolution piles on on top of it. All right so the first of these uh finance ministers uh, is Jacques Necker who was in power uh at least his first stint in power was 1777 to 1781. Uh, Necker was a Protestant banker from Geneva. Uh, so he had uh, you know a, a reputation for being honest, for being hardworking, um, and and Necker pushed through a program of austerity that is of savings on the one hand and loans on the other. That is, he wanted to tighten the tighten the royal belt, as it were, uh, and to take out loans. But he did not raise new taxes. Uh, so you know, to, to that extent, Uh, He bought some time with the aristocracy. He did not insist on new taxes, uh, nor did he declare bankruptcy. Um, But he did create a series of new provincial assemblies for political support that is As we discussed in the first weeks of the semester, there were a number of provinces in France where the local provincial assemblies or estates uh, had stopped meeting and that were governed directly by royal intendants. And so Necker began to, to bring these local institutions back. This was the kind of thing that the aristocratic parliament uh, had, had been demanding. But what Necker did with a twist was that he doubled the number of third estate representatives in these new assemblies, right? So all of these assemblies were organized by estates. First, second, third. The first estate is the clergy. Second estate is the aristocracy. The third estate is everyone else. Now there was precedent for this. Necker didn't really create anything new he was building on the precedent set in existing uh, provincial estates. Some of which were very old uh, and very prestigious and influential, in particular, the provincial estates of Languedoc in the south. Among the oldest in the kingdom had doubled the number of third estate representatives, right? So this isn't strictly speaking new, but it was a way for Necker to push back at and contain the power of the aristocratic law courts uh, and the 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 aristocratic magistrates or judges. Now in 1781, Necker publishes and it's a really sort of r- remarkable effort. In 1781, Necker publishes what's known as the Contrendu. And Contrendu in French simply means the report. Now the aristocracy and the law courts had been demanding throughout the 18th century for the French crown to show them the books. And that's what Necker does. At least that's what he says he does. So he publishes a report of the royal finances. Doyle talks about this. Um, again, I, I need to emphasize this, this term. It's called the compte rendu, the, the report. Uh, where, where Necker is publishing the French royal finances for the first time. The catch is that he divided, he only publishes ordinary accounts, but he had a separate set of books for extraordinary accounts that he left out of the compte rendu, right? So the extraordinary expenses, um, you know, dealing with the financing of war, especially of the American Revolution, Necker excluded from this publication, um, Uh, And and, and so, basically, this was Necker's uh, attempt to say, look, uh, everything is fine, so that he could borrow more money. Uh, And really what Necker was doing was he took out vast amounts of short-term loans at high interest, right? And Doyle talks about this. These were called anticipations, right? And it was an anticipation Of the next year's harvest. So, from year to year, a tremendous amount of money simply went into servicing the the king's debt. Um, Now, so in the short run, Necker's attempts were successful. He bought goodwill, he bought some time. Uh, In 1782 83, so immediately after he publishes the the Contre rendu, Necker Uh, he overplayed his hand and he tried to force his way onto what's known as the King's Council. But the problem was that Necker was a Protestant and you had to be Catholic in order to be on the King's Council. And so his enemies at court used that against him and pushed him out of power. Um, And so in, in 1783, we get a new finance minister named Calon. So Calon was the finance minister you know, for the next, uh, what is it, um, four or five years from 1783 until 1787, Calone, well, he, well, he was Catholic. He was, um, I mean, very attractive, sort of slippery, social climbing, aristocratic, wheeler dealer. Uh, you know, people, he did not enjoy the same level of uh, public trust as Necker had um but he, he he followed some of necker's policies he he created more of these provincial assemblies uh that were um you know essentially served to to support royal intendants uh you know, calonne's approach was to restore confidence with lavish spending in public works right which he discussed or you know he called it useful splendor right, to try to insist that really everything is okay um, and, and to, to keep on spending, to, to, to keep public confidence high. The problem was that he could not get around Necker's he, he, um, you know, he needed to be able to continue taking out loans. Uh, and people said, well, look, Necker says everything is fine, why do you need to borrow more money? Uh, And so ultimately, the solution Calon came to was to call what's known as the Council of the Notables. Now, there was precedent for this, um, but only in the distant past. That is, uh, the Council of Notables had not been called since 1626. Right, And, and uh, you know, what, what ends up happening is that Kellan calls this, this group of aristocrats together to take his counsel, but really what he wants to do is to push through a far-reaching tax reform. Um, and it's really a remarkable policy that you can see in detail in the the Baker collection. Uh, and you'll notice, you know, when this council is is meeting, uh, that Kalon is making really striking demands. If you look at page one twenty nine of the Baker collection, Kalon, uh, who's speaking on behalf of the king, demands what he calls distributive justice. Right now, think about this, this is the finance minister for an absolutist monarchy ruling by the grace of God, who goes to his aristocracy and says, you need to pay more money to support the the royal effort. We need a policy of distributive justice, which means taking the wealth of the kingdom and dividing it up fairly. Now the notables come back to Calan and they say, "Look, you know, we're we're interested in paying our fair share. Of course, we want to support, uh, we want to support the king, and and we want to abolish any kind of unfairness." Right? We're the the the, the notables say they're willing to abolish tax inequality, but not privileges altogether. Um, in particular, the notal, notables come back to Calonne and the king and say they cannot approve a permanent tax, right? That this goes beyond their purview, their pay grade, if you will, that only the estates general, right, only what amounts to a constitutional convention uh, could begin to approve a new permanent tax, right? And this has been the aristocracy, the... the 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 aristocracy's objection all along right so we see what is by now a familiar combination of principle right the the nobility want to look at the books they want to understand what they're really being asked um, but they're combining that principle with naked self-interest okay they accept the idea of equality of taxation but they hold on to the idea that the nobility and clergy should enjoy special influence and representation in representative bodies. Right? So Calun had called the notables to act as a rubber stamp, um, but he did not handpick its members, right? The you know, first mistake of politics uh, and the notables refused to give him the rubber stamp that, that he needed, right? So he had been trying to create support for Royal policy and then it backfires. He tries a populist appeal to the common people, attacking noble privilege, but nobody believes him. This, after all, was the consummate royal insider. And so his efforts fall flat. And this is the real opening of a political crisis, the end of the old regime. The the crown loses control of events. They consulted the notables. Instead of imposing the royal will, the notables balk. And so what you see, especially in the Doyle reading, is again, a familiar sequence of royal demands met by the parliament's resistance. The king insists on registration of of new taxes, the parliaments refuse, the king exiles the, 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 the parliaments. Now, even so, in late 1787, all was not lost. That is, we're starting into a spiral Uh, I mean, I, I liken this to, um, you know, riding a bicycle, whether in the spring or the fall, and you hit a patch of, of, uh, leaves on the ground and you feel the back wheel of the bicycle or motorcycle flying out from underneath you, but you haven't hit the ground yet. Right. And you could still steer into the skid, uh, but it's not looking good, right? This is, you know, we're in, in late 1787. So, you know. It's not looking good, but all is not lost. The king um, makes a very wise choice, right? He chooses a man named Lomani de Brienne, Brienne, uh, who's one of the members of the the notables, you know, this council, um, to replace Calonne. So he he had been one of the members of the council of the notables. He had served in the Parliament of Paris. He had deep connections among those aristocratic judges. And, and Brienne, he tries to salvage the situation with what I think was a really ingenious plan, right? He promises to call the estates general if the Parlement will prolong the 20 tax. So he says, you can have the estates general by 1792. That's I'll give you the estates general in five years if you give me another 20th tax and get rid of a whole bunch of loopholes. So what Brienne was doing was he thought that if he could just get one more big set of taxes before the estates general met, uh, that those, those taxes would already have borne fruit, right? And that the meetings of the estates general would recognize his accomplishment, right? This was a huge confidence game, like a game of poker or ginning up the stock market. Um, right. He was assuming that the economy would do well enough if he could just get this fiscal stimulus that he could then control the Estates General. Now, you know, Brienne, the ultimate insider, works parliamentary opinion. Uh, he goes, he uses his contacts in the parliaments, and then he solidifies it or he tries to with a royal session on November 19, 1787. Uh, now this is not in the Baker collection, but Doyle does, uh, discuss it, uh, in the, the reading for this unit, uh, and that royal session backfires in spectacular fashion. Right. The king comes up with the most awkward, the most unfortunate of political gaffes you can possibly imagine. Right. After a minor challenge from one of his cousins at the opening of this sort of Basically, political theater. Louis XVI stammers uh, that the, these measures they're legal. Parce que je le veux, right? Just it's legal because I say so. Because this is what I want, and I'm the king. Uh, you know, this is really uh, in the the immediate context was an issue of protocol, right? It was a detail, and Louis XVI with his uh, you know with his mistake. Blows everything up. Um, and we descend into political chaos, cries of despotism, uh, and open war now between the crown and the parliaments. Uh, the next summer, on July 13th, 1788, there's a massive hailstorm uh, over Paris, but over all of northern France, which wipes out the wheat crop in the summer of 1788. Um that same summer, there's mysterious disease that kills all of uh, France's cattle. So now people are starving in, in France in a way that they have not done since the brutal winter of 1709. The situation is looking worse and worse and worse. And on top of that, if you recall the anticipations that I mentioned, those were the loans that Necker had taken out to um, you know, to, to pay in particular for the American revolution. Now it's clear that there's not gonna be a harvest and that the crown is not gonna be able to service its debt, right? And so on August 8th, Brienne says, okay, forget about 1792. He agrees to call the estates general in May, 1789. That is the following year, because he, he, he feels as though he's got to reassure the financial markets but it's too late, it doesn't work. And on August 16th, right, the the, the king declares bankruptcy, is not able to service the debt, right? Which makes a repeat of the Mopu revolution or the Mopu reforms impossible. And now in August of 1788, we've got the opening of an enormous political vacuum, right? And this is the context for the calling of the estates general, right? which amounts to a French constitutional convention right the estates general is an old medieval institution that has not been called since 1614 right because no French king wanted to call the estates general who knew who who could control it um okay so when you see in the reading a discussion of the forms of of 1614 right the first question that You know, Louis XVI and his ministers have to answer is okay, having agreed to call the Estates General, how are we going to organize it? Um, Now, uh, Necker's provincial assemblies. Um, you know, Brienne in 1788, I didn't mention this, but this, but Brienne too talked about the doubling of third estate representation. Uh, in the summer of uh, 1788 in the province of Dauphine, we get more provincial assemblies with double representation for the third estate. So all of the, um, if you like, of the momentum uh, was to call the estates general to organize it by estate, first, second, and third, but to have the third estate have twice as many representatives of the first two. But you know, when you hear discussion, the forms of 1614, that meant that the estates general would be organized by order and would vote by order rather than by head. So no matter how many members uh, representatives there were for the third estate, the forms of 1614 say that we vote by order. And this is what the parliament of Paris, like right, the biggest, the most powerful of the 13 sovereign law courts backs these forms of 1614 in September, 1788, right? And so now uh, where the political momentum had really been behind the parliaments the parliaments were speaking on behalf of the nation they were saying no taxation without representation the parliaments had be, had been claiming to speak on behalf of the nation but here at a stroke in september of 1788 right the rep, the, the magistrates of the, par, the Paris Parliament uh, have shifted things because now they really seem to be acting for themselves and not for the nation. Now they seem to be acting out of naked self-interest. At least this is how it it appeared in in public opinion, and the chaos is beginning to to, to spiral. Um, right, and and so you know. Uh, again th- this is really quite unprecedented the estates general has not met since uh 1614 um it's in the fall of uh, 1788 into the winter that you know, the organization you know there were elections for the estates general uh and, and here the details really matter. To elect the first estate, the clergy, uh, the the principle was one man, one vote. So if you were a priest, you you got to vote for the representatives of the first estate. The same was true for the second estate, for the aristocracy. If you could prove that you were a titled member of the aristocracy, uh, an adult male, you could vote for representatives to the second estate. The third estate was different. Like the third estate, we're talking millions and millions of people. I mean, France is a, a kingdom on the order of 20, 23 million people, most of whom, uh, you know, 10% or so, or sorry, you know, up to 90% or so, are members of the third estate. Uh, and so for the elections to these states general, there was a two tiered process broadly similar to what you see with the electoral college in the United States, in that there were village assemblies throughout the kingdom organized through uh, local parishes and people voted for a slate of electors. Now to serve as an elector, you had to be able to read and write and you had to be fairly wealthy, which meant that all of the representatives for the third estate were, were independent. They were all fairly wealthy the overwhelming majority of members of the Third Estate were poor peasants in the countryside, and yet there were no poor peasants in the Third Estate delegation. But most of them were uh were were lawyers, there were some doctors, they were petty government officials, um, but they 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 weren't farmers. That is the, the distinctions, the class distinctions, the divisions within the third estate do not show up in the third estate delegation that goes to the estates general in Versailles, right? So this is very, very important when we look at the way that the, the debates of, of the estates general play out, That like the first two estates are divided in a way that the third estate is not. And this is also the context for this very influential, very important long document that you have um, by the Abbé Seyes, S-I-E-Y-E-S is pronounced Seyes. What is the third estate? um you know this is one of the sort of foundational documents of the the period it's hugely influential for karl marx uh and the socialist tradition going forwards uh you and it's written uh, the abbe as um uh, what was a member you know, a critical member of the third estate delegation uh at the estates general you know even though he was a uh, a priest uh you know he joined with the third estate. Now you will see some aristocrats join with the the third estate early on. Um, And and he wrote this document in the winter of 1788, early 1789, uh, in the form of a catechism. So a catechism would have been familiar to all of the Catholic faithful, and this was a a kind of prayer that you were taught to recite without necessarily thinking about it, but to get the form of the the prayer correct. And and so when Seyes wrote this document, what is the third estate? it, It comes in the form of a call and response. You know, what is the third estate? Everything. What has it been up to now? Nothing. What does it aspire to be? Something right and as you read through this document I'd like you to first think about what kind of sources does Sayez draw on like how does he talk about uh, concepts like sovereignty which we've been discussing quite a bit up to this point in the semester but uh, above all I would like you to think about the context in which Sayez was writing in late 1788, 1789 and decide which you think was was more important, right? The emerging uh, political crisis, the emerging political vacuum uh, that now, uh, you know, things people had taken for granted for hundreds and hundreds of years seemed unstable and things that had been unthinkable forever and ever now all of a sudden started to be thinkable, started to be conceivable. People started to ask questions maybe that they had never asked before, right? On the one hand, or do you see this document, what is the third estate, as giving voice to the voiceless, as giving voice to a longstanding and very deep set of grievances that only now in, in, in this context in 1788, early 1789, uh, were, were able to be expressed.